This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The image is unique. The discovery is revolutionary. Without a doubt, the sign of Jonah was the symbol of Jesus' earliest followers. That's a clip from The Jesus Discovery, a new documentary from filmmaker Simcha Yakubovich. It offers new evidence to support the claim that he's found the final resting tomb of the family of Jesus. Coming up, I'll talk to Simcha about this discovery and why it may shake up our understanding of Christianity. It's a huge development in the fight against cancer and other diseases, personalized medicine. Just what is it about this new technology that has doctors and scientists buzzing? I'll find out from Dr. Lillian Sue at Princess Margaret Hospital. What do I care how much it may stop? April 7th, 1915 was the birthday of Eleonora Harris. You probably know her better by her stage name, Billie Holiday. Today, we'll honor her with a look back at her tragic life and the amazing music she left behind. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. American grandparents are picking up more responsibilities when it comes to taking care of their grandchildren. A survey by AARP, the U.S. organization for Zoomers, found that over 90% polled play a significant role in their grandchildren's lives and that more than a third contribute financially to their grandchildren's upbringing. 40% reported spending more than $500 over and above gifts on grandchildren over the past year. The AARP says tough economic times mean that grandparents have stepped up as the safety net for American families, helping to pay for expenses and necessities. Speaking of grandparents, a 93-year-old Florida grandmother is selling her 1964 Mercury Comet Caliente after racking up over 576,000 miles. That's 927,000 kilometers. Rachel Veitch bought the car in 1964 for just over $3,000. It's been her only car ever since, outlasting her three marriages and requiring 18 battery changes. Unfortunately, Rachel's driving days are over because she is now legally blind. She wants to sell the car rather than pass it down to her family because she wants to make sure it'll go to someone who will take care of it properly. And she does have someone in mind. Rachel is hoping that the famous Zoomer car enthusiast Jay Leno might be interested. A close call for a Canadian television crew reporting a follow-up to last month's massacre in Toulouse, France, when a gunman with links to al-Qaeda killed three children and an adult at a Jewish school. These two guys on a scooter came from behind us. They stopped, like, right next to us, getting out of the car, and, like, they were yelling us, give us the camera. Those guys on the scooter started chasing us from behind. We thought we lost them for, for good. And then uh, they came out of, like, a, an alley out of nowhere, 
and um, they threw a rock at the back window. Suddenly, I hear the window bursting behind me. It was a life-threatening situation, basically. That's cameraman Eli Marom. He was working with veteran filmmaker Martin Himmel, whose documentary, Persecuted Christians, was recently featured on this program. There's a heightened sense of animosity, fear, anger on all sides from what has happened. And there are definitely groups that are trying to moderate it and to turn to level-headed people in both communities. But uh, the fear factor has gone sky high, uh, especially in Jewish communities, and they're frightened of some fundamentalist, angry young Muslim from coming out and going after them again. And finally this week, the United States Census from 1940 was released online. The details of the 132 million people surveyed offer a comprehensive snapshot of the U.S. as it emerged from the Great Depression and hovered on the cusp of war. About 21 million of those people are still alive, including celebrities like Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman. The records reveal intimate details of people's lives, including their income, employment, and household information. It's expected to shed light on social changes, like the mass migration of black Americans away from the rural South. Analysts say the records could also give an indication of how government policies like the New Deal influenced people's lives. Public interest in this census has been so large that the website hosting it crashed repeatedly in the first few days after the census was released. Those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. I'm Libby Zneimer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. It's Easter Sunday, and millions of Christians are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A groundbreaking new documentary claims it has uncovered the earliest evidence of the belief in resurrection and that this discovery will shake up our understanding of Christianity. Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Simcha Yakubovich believes this archaeological find also confirms that Jesus and his family are buried nearby. He was in our studios to talk about the Jesus discovery. It's a huge find because if we're right, we've identified <laughs> the Jesus family tomb, and not just the Jesus family tomb, but the earliest followers to back up. In, in 1980, uh, bulldozers digging, you know, building in Jerusalem found a tomb. What they found in 1980 in tomb number one, 10 ossuaries, six of them with names on them, all of them related to the Jesus family. Uh, one of them said uh, Jesus, son of Joseph, two Marys, Josie, which in the Gospels is given as a nickname for one of Jesus' brothers. But when we brought this story to the world, people said, well, you know, it's a coincidence. I mean, lots of people were called Jesus in the first century in Jerusalem. There were lots of Marys. You know, if you talk to John and Paul and George, it doesn't mean you're talking to the Beatles. Exactly. So next to this tomb, there's another tomb 60 meters away. And that one was not excavated. So we thought if we could get into that unexcavated tomb, only 60 meters from the Jesus tomb, maybe we would find something related to his earliest followers, to Joseph of Arimathea, who buried Jesus. Maybe we could, you know, find something extraordinary. But the problem was, how do you get in there? We had to build a robotic arm because the religious uh, activists would have started rioting when they thought we would physically go into the tomb. So the only way to get them on side was to excavate without physically entering. 
we had to get the police on side because they were afraid that we would trigger riots. And we had to get the condo committee on side because if you're going to go into someone's building and start smashing up their basement, you need their okay. So it took us the better part of two years to get everybody on side. And we did the first ever uh, virtual, okay, or robotic excavation of uh, Jesus-era tomb in Jerusalem. I'd like to explore the technology you use. Is it proprietary technology? Well, I mean, proprietary. I mean, we went to this genius in Toronto, Walter Klassen, who works in film. And he built this amazing uh, arm that can extend. And we had a camera. G donated a camera. And my associate, Felix Golubov, he was the genius who figured out where the tomb is. Remember, it's under an apartment building. And nowhere does it say, dig here. So we had to do ground-penetrating radar, and we had to figure out where the tomb is and then smash through the ceiling into it, extend Walter's robotic arm, and we had this little snake camera. It looks like a little snake that could kind of sneak in between ossuaries and register images that were like a centimeter away. And we went in there with a robotic arm, and we found something amazing. What we found is a sign of Jonah. Now... If you find a cross, which we found on one of the ossuaries, scholars say, well, a cross wasn't a Christian symbol in the first century. It only became a Christian symbol in the fourth century. You should find a fish. If you find a fish, they say, well, earlier than the fish, the biblical image associated with Jesus was Jonah. Jonah who was swallowed up by the whale. Let's just make it clear. Jonah who was swallowed up by the whale. To find the sign of Jonah, to find on a coffin, on an ossuary, a fish spitting out a stick figure is the earliest Christian sign ever found. It puts back the clock by 250 years earlier than the catacombs of Rome. It means whoever carved that lived at the time of Jesus, knew Jesus, and it means resurrection. We found an inscription, the first inscription, 3,000 ossuaries have been found so far, never a statement of faith. Ours is the first one ever found. And again, it deals with resurrection. And you believe this confirms the first findings. Taken together, you have a cross, you have a Jonah image, and you have a statement of resurrection. All 60 meters from the other tomb, you suddenly have an archaeological cluster of evidence. And uh, what do you think the implications of this are? So I think there'll be varied reactions, and I think it'll take a while for people. You you can't just kind of This is an archaeological earthquake. You can't, like, on day one, uh, know where all the dominoes uh, fall. Okay. Simcha Yakubovich, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. The world premiere of the Jesus Discovery will air on Vision TV on April the 12th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Libby Zneimer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. We're trying to begin to evaluate personalized cancer medicine at Princess Margaret Hospital. It's a huge development in the fight against cancer and other diseases. Personalized medicine. Just what is it about this new technology that has doctors and scientists buzzing? Coming up, I'll find out from Dr. Lillian Sue at Princess Margaret Hospital. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing making people's lives better. Scientists say it's the way of the future. Personalized medicine holds the promise of offering patients the right treatment at the right time 
based on the individual characteristics of their disease. I got a tour of the University Health Network lab that's using sophisticated new equipment to profile the exact nature of cancerous tumors. What this piece of equipment allows us to do is look for hundreds of mutations at the same time across a lot of different genes that we're interested in. So the real advance here is that we can use a very small piece of tumor material and actually interrogate 281 regions in 24 genes all at the same time. That's Dr. Suzanne Camel-Reed, Director of Genetics and Molecular Diagnostics for the University Health Network. She was showing me the latest technology in her extensive lab. It's a gene profiling machine, a four-foot by one-foot box that can reveal the distinct molecular makeup of cancerous tumors. Because tumors that look the same under a microscope can have very different genetic mutations. So you take the actual tissue sample, um, and then we actually spot it on a little chip, and that chip then goes into this machine, and that chip is red, and the data then comes onto the computer here. That green dot, does that mean a mutation? Yes. Can you tell by looking at that what kind of mutation is, what kind of cancer? Yeah, so this is a specific mutation in a gene called PIK3CA, and we see those mutations frequently in, for example, breast cancer. Now that the technology is tested and in place, Princess Margaret Hospital is starting to take it from the lab to the clinic. Dr. Lillian Sue has launched a clinical trial to test this method for patients with advanced cancer. It's called IMPACT, Integrated Molecular Profiling in Advanced Cancer, and she intends to recruit 500 patients in the first year. I sat down with her in her office at PMH's Robert and Maggie Brass and Family Drug Development Program. This is the personalized medicine that we've all been hearing about. Does this mean it's here? I think it's here, but it's not all here yet. I think we're just at the beginning of it. It's very exciting because 10 years ago, I don't think any one of us would think that we're able to do that today. In the next five to 10 years, we're going to see much, much progress. And the difficulty is trying to put that information together to make sense of it and then translate it to the clinic to help our patients. You've just started the IMPACT trial. Tell me about it. What is it? We started on March 1st. We're trying to begin to evaluate personalized cancer medicine at Princess Margaret Hospital. So this is still a first step. We are recruiting a goal of 500 patients in the first year where we will include patients with selected tumor types, so colon cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and also patients that are referred for early phase clinical trials to Princess Margaret Hospital. What's the connection between the genetic mutations that occur in cancer and the treatment and whether or not they work? Looking back a step, we know that cancer is a genetic disease, that cancers happen because genes in tumor cells changed to make them cancerous, to grow and spread. And we know that probably many genes are involved and many changes are involved. It's probably not just one gene, one change, one cancer. The story is much more complex than, than just that. But at least this first step allows us to look at the common genes, especially the ones that we considered, quote, druggable, because genes that we have drugs to target against in the clinic to allow us, if we find a very specific change in the cancer, we can potentially find a drug 
that would allow us to give to the patient to control their cancer for hopefully a good period of time. Prior to this, we were using mainly diagnosis of what we call histology. Colon cancer is colon cancer, breast cancer is breast cancer. But we now know one colon cancer is not the same as another colon cancer. But in those cases where there are different genetic changes, do they still look the same under the microscope? Very often, yes, that under the microscope, you really cannot tell what gene changes are present. So having this additional information, this is like an added weapon to allow us to understand better what's driving cancers or some of the cancers to grow. And over time, I think we'll learn much more than we now do to know what molecular changes are actually involved in creating the characteristics of the cancer that we are seeing in the clinic in our patients. We know we have the ability and the technology to do this in the laboratory and actually turn around the results fast enough so that patients don't have to wait months. We expect a turnaround to happen in weeks. Why are you only doing this with metastatic cancer? We're starting with metastatic disease so that we can be able to apply drugs to see those molecular changes, those genetic changes, to see if it actually makes a difference in terms of matching patients to specific drugs. So we'll see an effect if there is indeed a logic to match drugs and targets together. So what is your hope for the trial? I hope that we're going to change the way we see and deal with cancer, certainly in my lifetime. I mean, I'm very glad to see that we have this kind of technology available. We can actually translate what we've learned in textbooks to the clinic. That's, you know, something I have not imagined we could see during, you know, my time as an oncologist. To be able to say what we've learned that drives a cancer can be actually measured in the cancer and even further, take a drug that targets that change and see whether it makes a change in the patient's history. That's fantastic. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And why weren't we doing that before? I'm so glad we could do it now. Dr. Lillian Sue, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Next week, Princess Margaret Hospital will launch a huge campaign to bring personalized medicine to more patients in the future. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Yesterday would have been Billie Holiday's birthday. The iconic singer was, without a doubt, one of the great musical forces of the 20th century, but her life was marred with tragedy and personal struggles. Coming up, we'll look back at the life and music of Billie Holiday. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Billie Holiday was born Eleonora Harris on April 7, 1915. Her early life was difficult. She was raised by a single mother and dropped out of school at just 11 years old. Around the same time, she was sexually assaulted by a neighbor and as a result was put in state care. When she was released, she and her mother went to work at a brothel as prostitutes. It was during that time that Billie found solace in music, hearing the early records of Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith, She followed her mother to New York City and started singing in local clubs. When she was 18, she was discovered by producer John Hammond. He was instrumental in getting holiday recording work with an up-and-coming band leader named Benny Goodman. In 1938, she joined Artie Shaw and his orchestra. This was her breakout role. She became the first female African-American featured in an all-white orchestra. From there... Her stardom took off, and she became one of the most influential jazz singers of all time. 
Still, she couldn't escape her painful past, and she struggled with drinking and drug use. Her painful life experiences are what many people believe play such an important role in shaping her unique sound, and they come through especially strong in songs like this one, God Bless the Child. Them that's God shall get, them that's not shall lose. So the Bible said, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own. That's got his own Yes, the strong gets more While the weak ones fade Empty pockets don't ever make the grave Mama may have, Papa may have But God bless the child that's got his own Holiday singing God Bless the Child, a song she co-wrote with Arthur Herzog Jr. She was born 97 years ago yesterday. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you'll be back next Sunday at noon when we mark the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.